Okay. We are nearing, actually, which is a milestone, we're nearing the end of um, Perak Dalit, yeah. Now, the Ramchal uh, speaks a lot about uh, ideas about the significance of Torah. Uh, but I had covered that, I, you know, in uh, a lot of the stuff in um, the Ramchal's Yotzai Shir. A lot of the ideas of the significance of what, what Torah really is and so on, you know. Um, so what the Ramchal says now he tries to sum up, really, summarize. And what he says is that <clears throat> everything that happens, whether for the good or for the bad, is determined by one idea only. And that is what's called the Ha'ora, the enlightenment or the illumination or the hester, the concealment, the diminishment of the presence of God. This is what he says. In other words, that if you're close to God, so to speak, and therefore there's a tremendous infusion of God's presence, then everything goes phenomenal. If the reverse is true, that there is a distancing from you and God, right? And therefore the presence of God is concealed in whatever degree it is, then things are the reverse. Then things are, they, when they proceed, they proceed much worse. Obviously, that's a very general statement, and so on, you know. Uh, we can understand uh, at least some of the ideas from that, because we know, if you remember from the previous Shuram, we know that what the Rabban is, is, well, at least the way he manifests himself to us, is existence per se. And therefore, obviously, if the Bersham is sort of like close to you, then he gives you much more existence, which always is good. The more existence you have, obviously, that, that's always a very good uh, sign. If, however, the Bersham is distant from you, then there's a detraction of the flow of existence, so to speak, and as a result of that, things, of course, get much worse. So, you know, that's just one simple way of understanding uh, what the Ramchal is saying. Uh, because the Ramchal doesn't really explain, well, what does it mean that God is close to you? Well, what, is that, what is the illumination of God's being close? What does that really mean? Nor does he explain in much more detail, what does it mean that God's presence is diminished or removed from you? What is that supposed to mean, you see? Uh, but in, at least in a certain way, we can understand that, like I said, you know, in terms of the fact that God, His manifestation to this Bria creation, is that He is existence itself. When one once said, does God have existence? And the answer, of course, is no. He is existence itself. He doesn't have it, He is it, which is a whole different way of understanding. So, therefore, that's one of the ways you can understand what Ramchal uh, says. Uh, well, what he's trying to say and so on. And of course what he's saying also is that the, it's not only the presence or absence, but to the degree of presence. There are what's called gradations of presence and absence. So clearly the greater the amount of presence, the greater is the benefit that a person will receive, and the greater the diminishment of presence, uh, correspondingly, obviously, that will be a much greater form of, uh, of uh, non-benefit or detriment. You said, we said uh, way back when um, that, um, that there's existence, getting more existence is a, um, a feature of Olam Haba. Yes, so I mentioned that. that yeah. That, and you said that in Olam Haba, what's happening is the quality of the existence. Is that what you mean, or is well, Haba, the attachment that you have to God in Ilm Haba, is incomprehensible. In other words, what God did is He created a certain boundary, a certain amount. He said, "Okay, I can either be close to you or distant from you in terms of a certain amount. That's all." 
So within that small sphere, if you want to look at it, right, I can either be close or distant. Okay. But that is only one dimension. In Ilam Habo, the dimension of what, whatever we'll experience in Ilam Habo is completely different than what we understand. You know, it's like, uh, I hate to say it, but it's like, a, 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 you know, a, the little leagues. And the, not, and the little leagues, you know, where little kids play baseball. It's an American example. And then you, it's not even the, ma- it's not even the minor leagues because that's already adults, it's the major leagues, you know, so how do you compare the little leagues and the major leagues? You can't, I mean, it's just two different experiences. You know, unless your kid is on the baseball team, then it becomes very exciting. But if not, it's a whole different kind of experience, you know. But, uh, so this is where he explains it. Um, Ramchal many times is very general, doesn't give you enough meat you know, to hang on to and say, okay, what does he mean? But we, we can, at least from previous shurim, we can have some type of an understanding of what Ramchal is saying, you know. Uh, and then what he says, something is really very interesting. The question is, does the Rambam um, illuminate more or less toward each person? That's the question. When the Rambam decides to diminish his illumination or his presence to a person, does God really diminish his presence? That is the question, you see. So what Ramchal says is really very, very important. What he says is that the Rambam never diminishes his presence. It's always there. What the person does, right, the diminishment takes place because, not because God diminishes his presence, is because man erects a barrier. That's the point. It was not that Bansham says, okay, you know, you're not doing my mitzvahs or whatever, you're sinning, whatever, so therefore I will diminish your presence. No. That's always the presence of God, once it has been established that it's there, will never be diminished. What a person can do is create barriers, and therefore the barrier obviously will create diminishment. So that's a very important idea, you see. Because when you think about it, you create the barrier, not God. If God created the diminishment, so you'd have to coax God into, okay, let me have more of you. You know what I'm saying? Because it has, to do with, it has to do with you, obviously. God is responding to you, right? But then God would have to increase his presence, you see. But if it's not the case, if it is the person that diminishes the presence of God because he creates a wall, a barrier, right? then it, you have a much more direct input into the barrier. You can either increase the barrier, right? Or you can remove the barrier. It has nothing to do with God, you know? So therefore, you are much greater direct control of what is and what is not, you know? Which is really, in a certain sense, much better because it's directly up to you. And obviously, you create the barrier in, in typical gradations. You know, you can create more of a barrier, less of a barrier. You see, that's a very important idea, that the diminishment comes from us, not from him. You see. And obviously, when you create a barrier, not only do you disturb the amount of illumination of the presence of God, you see, but what's worse is you create sort of like, in the absence of the, of, of the presence of God, right, something else takes place and that's the whole concept of Sutton. So it's really two things going on. The first tragedy is what? Is where you have in certain sense pushed away God by incre- by creating a, a rift or barrier, a wall, right, between you and Him. But the second thing is that nature abhors a vacuum. So what happened is, is that the that is filled with the presence of the Sutton, His Zoyamah. His projection now fills that space because if God, if, if you have kept God out, then He fills the space that you have removed the presence of God. And that's really a very important concept of uh, what the tragedy is, you know. And uh, Tishabov actually, we're in the three weeks, which is interesting, you know. But uh, we will see how this is so important in, the, in Tishabov, the ninth day of Av when we mourn the temple, what the true Corbin is.
Remember, there's two concepts going on here. There's a Chorban that you've created a barrier for the presence of God. And the second Chorban is you've allowed entry to the satanic forces. That's a second type of Chorban that most people don't realize and so on, you know. Um, so this is a very important idea that Ram has. Ramchal says, in many ways, a good example, which I think is brought by uh, people, it's like the sun. The sun never stops shining, you know. But if you're in a house and it goes to a window, you could paint the window black, and you won't be able to. There'll be no sunlight entering. So it's not because the sun has diminished. The reason why it's dark is because you have created a barrier, right? You've painted the window black. And that's why the light doesn't enter, you see. And uh, as a result of that, um, in many ways, like I said, you can control the presence or the absence of God. It's a very important idea. Um, I think it was the Kotzka there, Kotzka once said, where is God? Where is God? I think once said this, where is God? You know, and he answered as in the Kotzka manner, because... The Kotzka River was very, very sharp, you know. He said, well, you know where God is? Wherever you let him in. See that? And he was right, exactly. That's what it means, you know. It's up to you. It's not up to him. He's there. He's knocking on your door. You want to let him in? Fine. You don't want to let him in? That's up to you, you know. Wherever you let him in, you know. Uh, the Kotzka always had these brilliant ways of, of understanding something, you know. I remember he once said, it says, Roy Lechol Yerei Shemayim in Shukhanarach. There's a simon there. It is appropriate and proper of each God-fearing person, right? She doyeg, that he should be very concerned and mourn the destruction of the temple. So the Kotzka says, what do you mean Yerei Shemayim? Why is it only appropriate for somebody who fears God to do this? And if you don't fear God... You also you shouldn't have to be concerned about the destruction of the base of English. That's what the Kotzk says. And the Kotzk answers, yeah. Because if you're not a Yerushimayim, you have to be concerned about your own destruction. <laughs> not the base of Migdash, you see? Yeah, he's kinda of comes in, he just belts out these incredible ideas, you know? You know, that's why, you know. So if you're Yerushimayim, so you're concerned about the destruction of the temple, you're not a Yerushimayim? Yeah, be concerned about your own destruction. It's more important at the present time, you know. So uh, there's other, uh, many, many other statements that the Kotzka said, you know. But anyway, that's what he said. He said, uh, uh, "Where is God? Anywhere you let him in," you know. You know. Uh, I remember my son once uh, came home, so uh, he he said that uh, in his class, he was a little kid then. So in his class, the Rebbe said, who knows where God is? Yeah, a bunch of white rats, seven-year-old kids, you know, whatever, you know. So the Rebbe said, who, who, uh, who knows where God is? So guys were saying, you know, he's in heaven, he's this, you know. See what a seven-year-old kid answers, you know. So one guy said, he's in the bathroom. God is in the bathroom. So the Rebbe looked at the kid and said, excuse me, what? He's in the bathroom? So why, why do you say that? So the kid said, I'll tell you why. Because when my father goes to the bathroom, you know, and he's there, who knows how long. So my mother says, you have to know Yiddish, and I'll translate it. God, please come out. Oh, God, please come out. So he assumed, therefore, that God is in the bathroom. My, my kid told me that when he was like, like seven, eight years old. I never forgot it because it was like, a, you know, what can you say, you know? Somehow it loses, it loses in the translation. You know, in Yiddish it's like, it's great, you know. Please God, oh God, come out already, you know. What was that? In French, what is that? You say it in French? It works well also. It's what? It works well. It works well also? Okay, you know. But Yiddish, it works out great, you know. Yeah. But anyway, <coughs> so this is what the Ramchal says. And clearly, he adds, the Rabbi Shechem Sato adds, adds uh, in closing this uh, chapter, that the way, what is the way to get 
the uh, to rem to create and remove a barrier or to diminish a barrier. So he says the way is the mitzvahs, is the commandments of God. If you do the mitzvahs, then what happens? Then the barrier is not created. You see, there's no barrier, so therefore you will be receptive to the full illumination of God. If, however, you do sinning, then sin chet creates a barrier, right? And as a result of the barrier, you will receive much less of the illumination, and therefore um, uh, you've created the barrier, and, and there'll be much less. You see, and I once explained why. Because remember, every mitzvah ultimately is a testimony, if you recall, of Enoid Mavadoi. Besides God, there is nothing else. If you recall that, when a person does a mitzvah, what he's really doing, he's suspending his own will. And he's saying, I want to do what God commanded and not me, because God is really the only will that exists. So measure for measure, since you believe that God is the only being that exists, the only will, therefore, right, me measure for measure, he will appear to you and you will experience that will. But if you sin, what you're really saying is that besides God's will, there's also mine, because I can do whatever I want. So measure for measure, God will say, listen, if you hold yourself to be an independent being for me, fine. So I will disappear, so to speak, or I will remove my illumination. It's measure for measure. And what that does is that concept of sin creates a barrier called I am. It's really what the barrier is, you know. It doesn't mean literally you create a, create a wall. The wall is your belief. It's really what it is. When you sin, what you've done is if you, you've erected a belief that you are somebody. And the more you believe you're somebody, to that extent, God will say, well, if you're somebody, right, then I will diminish the fact that I am everything. You see, that's the wall. The wall is the belief. You know, we actually sit there, construct a wall. No, the wall is what you believe. It's a very important concept that your belief can form a barrier. It's amazing when you think about that. It's all it is. It's what I believe. You know what I'm saying? But it is the belief itself that forms the barrier. You see? So if you believe that you're somebody, besides God, there's somebody else. So therefore, God responds to that belief and says, if that's how you feel, then I will justify your feeling and I will cease to be involved in your life. If, however, the reverse, where you make a statement where I believe that you're the only one that exists, the God says, based on your belief, right, that will now justify your experiencing me directly. You have to remember one thing, which is very important. God is a shadow. His behavior is like a shadow. Right? A shadow does not move on its own, right? Every instant that you move, the shadow will move exactly what you do, you know? So what God decreed, which is interesting, that in this world, He is a shadow, you see? He does exactly what you do. You move right, He moves right. You move left, He moves left, you see? That's a very important idea, and therefore, God, what is the shadow of God? What does he respond to? He responds to your beliefs and your declaration. An important idea, you see. If you believe that in Mavadai, he will respond to that and demonstrate to you and allow you to experience in Mavadai, which means besides God, there's nothing else. He will be far more active in your life, you see. And I want to tell you something. You don't have to be Jewish to experience that. It's a mistake people make. God will respond the exact same way to Goyim. You know? I once read which, which, uh, which, uh, uh, something. There was, a, there was a story about a group of kids that went with a, a priest. You know? And they were stuck somewhere in Nevada. Whatever. In their travels, I think their car broke down. It was a guy, a priest. Was he a priest or pastor? Whatever it was, you know. As I say, he was a man of the cloth. 
anyway. And he took a whole bunch of guys with him. And they went touring, you know? So somewhere in the middle of nowhere, their car broke down. And it was a very untraveled road. You know, it's bad news, you know what I'm saying? So the kids were tremendously worried. And it was a, you know, it was a Reader's Digest novel. It wasn't a novel, it's a real travelogue, you know? I hate to quote Reader's Digest, but listen. I read this 30 years ago, whatever, whatever, you know? So they, so they, they were all, the, the, the guys, the teenagers, 16, 17, they were tremendously concerned. They're gonna drop dead in this place. There's no water, the car's broken, and there's nobody on the road, you know? So the, the, the guide who was a priest, or he was a, uh, a, a clergy, or one of them, right? He said, what are you worried about? Hey, look, God loves us. I mean, it's incredible, you know? He said, don't worry about it. God loves us. He's not gonna let us die in this desert. Don't worry, you gotta believe in God. And he's gonna, he's gonna come, you know? The minute he finished that statement, there was some guy coming over the horizon on the road. The mamash, literally, you know? It was astounding. That's a tremendous, uh, as I said, Musa Haskell, you know? That doesn't make a difference if you're Jewish or not, you know? God will respond to anybody that believes in him. And he will come to a system. So, it, it, so like I say, you know, it's not just for Jews. For Jews, certainly it's like that. But for any uh, person that believes in God, you know, God is that type of a being that he will respond to anybody that believes who he is, you know. So that's very good because a belief can be changed rapidly, you know. You know, you, uh, you, you just have to alter your belief in who the Bansham is and his power and automatically you will let him in. It's that quick, you know, it's that quick and so on. Yeah. You could, there are people that have faith in God. They believe in God. Yes. But they don't have that much trust. And I, I think the lever of letting to feel God's presence or let him direct your life is to have more patak, to have more trust. That story illustrated that guy had trust in God. And what happened, but you know, the Greeks, Aristotle, Socrates, they, they thought there was a God, but that he didn't influence people's lives intimately. Yeah, yeah, Aristotle. But in the Torah, God's open, and in the prayers, it's always saying, I took you out of Egypt with a strong yes. man, not an angel. That shows yeah. that he is intimately Connected. affecting people's lives. Yes. Everybody's. Yes. However, uh, I once told you the difference between faith and trust. Remember that share? What difference between faith and trust is? What difference between the Faith and trust, right? So to have faith means to believe in a supreme being that runs the world, <coughs> right? That is capable of doing anything, right? Trust is different. Trust means I believe that what he said he will do, he will do. And I gave you, remember then, a very interesting example. You know, if you borrow money from the mafia, right? And they tell you, you know, for, uh, you take, let's say you take uh, $50,000, you want to borrow it for one week, so they say, okay, but it's, uh, it's 100% every week. It's loan shocking, you know what I'm saying? So they said, uh, if, you don't come, if you don't give us the money back in a week, and so on and so forth, then, you know, take out your knees. We can the process, you know, and the guy, comes the end of the week, I doesn't have the 50, doesn't have the 100 grand to give back to the, the mafia guys, you know? So what does he do? He runs away. I mean, if you run away, you know? That's Bitochen. He has faith, he has trust in the mafia that they will do as they say they will do. That's trust, yeah. To trust means that I believe that the person says something and he will do what he says he will do. That's trust. He said he, he promises to do something and he's going to do it. I trust that he will do as he said. To believe faith is that he exists, but that he will keep his promises, that's bitochen. And it works not only in the positive, but I believe it works in anything. You know? And what did God say he will do? He said, And God, your God, loves you. Wow. That means we have trust that he will act as a being that loves us. 
he is your father one who owns you so therefore we have trust that he will act as a father which obviously is a being father is uh, infinite love right and then it says you are children of God therefore we we have trust that God will treat us as children obviously so therefore we have complete trust in God that he will do what he said he will do that's trust so this this uh, you know and and so obviously that's the difference many people confuse the two but they're really two distinct characteristics you see faith and trust are two different types of things yeah wanted to ask um, when you do a mitzvah so we saw on a cosmic level you do a mitzvah you're bringing kedusha to the world today you're discussing about what happens to me when I do a mitzvah I let down the, the, this barrier between me and Hashem and I let, I let his presence illuminate on me more and more um, is there a connection between those two things or it's two separate processes between two things which two things we, we have spoken about doing a mitzvah is on a cosmic level, when you do a mitzvah, you bring Kedusha to the world. Yes. Gilu Shechina to the world. Yes. Tonight, today we're talking about how I just let down the... Uh, the Shefa. The Shefa, the, the, the Ha'orah. To, uh, unto me. The enlightenment, yeah. Is this the same process just happening on, <coughs> on a general level and on a personal level? Yes. At the same time, yeah. different processes. No, well, no, no, no. It's a simultaneous. Sometimes. Yeah, because... See, what it really is, is that, let's assume, like the team, let's say a basketball team, right? Right? The object is to win, which means to get the most points, but it's not an individual effort. It's a team effort, right? So ultimately, each person can contribute to the team effort. In other words, if a guy puts the ball into the basket, right, then he scores a point. So he gets the point. But that point means his team will win, right? So it's not just for him. It's also for his team. Same idea. When a person does mitzvahs, what he does is he brings down a tremendous illumination. However you want to look at it. Uh, remove the barrier, whatever you want to, however you want to look at the mechanics. You know what I'm saying? But what he does is he rectifies by bringing the presence of God into a place that is devoid of that presence. He brings. But since he is, the, he's not, he's the, not only the, he, there are all the Jewish people are assigned just different areas of the creation so ultimately he brings down he illuminates or enlightens one area but at the same time the whole creation has to be illuminated so he contributes to the uh, ultimate illumination of the entire uh, cosmos as you say creation so it's you're really doing both at the same time because each Jew is not an individual Jew he's a member of a team that's the important idea. It's a team effort. The Ramchal calls that team effort, or he calls the rectification of the Bria, Tikkun HaKloli. Tikkun HaKloli means there's the, the all-encompassing, the general re rectification. You see, one Jew is not assigned the whole thing. The only Jew, well, I wouldn't call him Jewish, but the only man ever given the job of being able to rectify all of it by one guy is Adam Harishan. He could have done the entire job himself. Once he failed, then the whole cosmos, the creation was given to individuals. So therefore, it's really a team. There <coughs> is no one person anymore who does that job, you see. Yeah, I'm connected to one part of, the, of creation. Yes, exactly. So when I rectify my part, I rectify this part of creation. Yes, but really, the job isn't just that one part. It's the whole creation. So you really become part of a team effort. So therefore both happen in terms of what you did and the fact that in terms of what the team has to do, it's also uh, be, being done. So it's really both at the same time. Yeah? When you say the Shema, Shema Yisrael, you're not talking to God, are you? You're talking to the team. You're talking to the rest of Israel. Uh, yeah, yeah. Here, here, Israel. It's a declaration. God is one. Yes, correct. It is a declaration of a belief. That's what Shema Israel is. When you declare that, 
right? You are declaring it. Well, actually, when you really think about it, it's not just declaring it to others. You're really declaring it to yourself. It's a professing of a belief that you believe. You know, you could have said, um, you're talking to yourself, really. When you say, hear Israel, right? What you're really saying is, listen, guys, you know, in a certain sense, or I should listen to myself. God is one. You see. See, I read that um, you take the letters of Yisrael. Yeah. It, it has all the... Uh, yeah. Ayin Dalet, Aid, and Da. The Yavos, the fathers, and Okay, that's, yeah. those are Ramazim, those are illusions and so on. Really? But the, yeah, but the essential so idea... No, no, no. No, you're really, you're, you're professing a belief to, uh, to really to yourself. I mean, you are Israel. You could say, here Israel, I am Israel. Let me talk to myself, you know, uh, and so on, you know. That's what you would do. In any case, so this is what Ramchal says is what, uh, about the concept of that all illuminations and all uh, uh, disilluminations, right? It all depends on your belief statements and your acts. It's really both. So if you act in the proper way with the proper intent, the uh, barrier will be removed and you will bring God close into your life. And if you do the reverse, then God will respond like a shadow. In the reverse, and therefore you will be less uh, subject or privy to the illumination of God. This is what Ramchal, Ramchal uh, ends off the fourth parak, and so on. It's very important ideas and so on. Okay. We have actually made it to the fifth parak. What Ramchal is now about to do, which is really very interesting, he's now about to identify what are the different beings or components of creation that God made? What are they? You know, and uh, what he's going to try to do is classify them. He's not going to say, well, he created tigers and this and that. No, no, no. He's going to classify what's called the general classification of what types of beings did God make. And obviously, each one has a specific function. This is what the Ramchal is about to go into. So it's a very interesting area and so on and so forth. What do you mean by beings? Beings. Entities. Entities? <coughs> Things. Things means material. Yeah, well, no, 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 that's not the material. Things that exist, that's an entity. A being, an entity, a thing that has existence, right? And, and has functions. So the Ramchal is now going to go into the totality of all the different classes of beings that God created. That's what he's going to do now. Okay. It's like a tour of the cosmos in a certain sense, you know. So the Ramchal says that if you want to look at the beings or entities that God created, basically there are two overriding, overarching categories. Only two of them. There are physical or material beings, and there are spiritual beings. These are the two classes. You're either spiritual or you are material or physical. Now what's important to remember, by the way, is God is not, people make a mistake, God is, of course, not physical, but he's not spiritual either. God is not a spiritual being, even though we would tend to think of him more spiritual, obviously, than physical. But the Rabbanishim is not spiritual. You know, what God is, is uh, we have no comprehension of who he is, what he is, how he functions in and of himself. It's called Atzmusai. He, insofar as himself, we have absolutely no comprehension of what he is. We, all we know about him is what he does. I should say, all we know about him is what he has chosen to tell us what he does. Let's put it that way, you know. What he does, we have no idea. God has never revealed to anybody the totality of his acts. You see, 
And uh, like I say, you know, we, we, what we do know, or try to know, is what he does is that he made a creation, okay? And the creation that he made is this world. It's not a world only. It's the totality of all the creation that he made. However, what God could have done, obviously, is he could have made an infinite amount of different creations. None of any of the creations, right, replicate or duplicate anything in anything else, which is beyond comprehension, you know. We, we can't even grasp what he made in this creation. I mean, you think about it, how many different, scientists estimate there are over 100 million species, between 10 and 100 million different species. Could you believe, and these are just life forms. And besides that, God created also what? The inanimate universe, stars, right? Uh, all of this is inanimate, you know. And besides that, God created, not just that, but uh, um, there are seven fundamental elements to this world, which is interesting. Seven. And God created each one. And the composite of all seven is really this universe, this physical universe. One. What are they? Because this is the, uh, it's called the, the broad sweep of the fundamental elements of this creation. So the first idea is he created space. We don't know what space is, you see. Space fundamentally is really nothing. You really think about that. How could, how could nothing be something? You know, if you really think about that, how could nothing be something, you know? In, in fact, if you go outside, you, you, let's assume you go, you're in a rocket ship and you go upstairs, you know, you're outside the atmosphere, right? And while you're in outer space, you put your hand here, then you put your hand here, right? Now, right? But the question is, what is between this hand and this hand? Nothing. Am I right? Nothing there. Yet, if there was nothing there, so why is your hand here? And the other hand is here. So the answer is, there is something there, it's called space. What in the world is space, really? You see? So God created space, and then he created time. And nobody knows what time is, really. I like to define time, right? Time is the endurance of matter. It's the endure, it enables matter to endure. You know, to it's a continuity of existence, so to speak. But what exactly does that mean? Unknown. So nobody knows what space is. Nobody knows really what time is, right? And then, of course, God created what's called matter. You know, matter. Matter is something that takes up space and time, you see? And nobody really knows what matter is. It's interesting. You know, I mean, they, they used to think in terms of matter that you can, you know, um, ultimately you'll reach the fundamental particle of matter, but not really. So they used to think it was the compounds and then they went down to the molecules. Then they realized the molecules themselves are made up of atoms. Then they realized the atoms itself are made up of subatomic particles, electrons and nucleus and so on, protons and so on. Then they realized that the protons themselves are made up of what's called the quarks, you see? And I'm like, a, and a quark is like, you, you, you can't imagine how small a quark is, you know, and so on, you know? Now, maybe the quark itself is made up of something, right. which is called strings. Although I don't know where that theory is going lately, it's not really doing that well. You don't hear much about strings anymore, you know? But, um, and strings are almost infinitesimal pieces of something, you see? Nobody knows. Nobody knows where the end of all of this is, and so on, you know. Uh, so God created space, time, and matter, and of course, God created energy. And nobody has any idea of what energy is. You know, I love these definitions of energy, you know, it's a capacity to do work. What? Work? What? What's the capacity? 
does that mean the capacity to work? Yeah, the result of having energy is that you can work. But what is energy? It's not a definition, you see. Nobody really knows what energy is. So, we have the four basic elements of, of the Bria. Space, time, matter, and energy. Yes? That's four unknowns. Then the fifth unknown is called life. Think about that. And nobody has any, no, they have no, nobody knows what life is. You know, some people want to define it this way, define it that way, but in the end, nobody knows what it is to live. Is a virus alive? I mean, it looks like it's alive because it can bring you down to bed. You know what I'm saying? You know, it looks like it's alive because it really can make you sick and so on, you know? But what does that mean? It's not living, it's not a living thing that you could say, you know, it's, but it does, it, it, but it, it looks like it's alive, so, Nobody knows what life is, really. So that's number five. Number six, consciousness. Nobody knows what consciousness is, really. I mean, consciousness is the concept of awareness, right? But what, what does it mean to be aware? You see? So that is the sixth element of the Bria that God created. And the seventh element, element is called motion everything is moving everything you see <clears throat> nothing stands still why why isn't there something standing still no such thing you know like the earth rotates around itself it's one motion then the earth revolves around the sun right 18 miles a second that's another motion you believe we're going 18 miles a second you believe that in, uh, okay, 1,001, we just made 18 miles. That's astounding. Nobody felt it, you know? And then the sun and the whole planetary system is moving at, if I remember correctly, at 27 miles a second, right? I think toward uh, the star Vega. You know, like, what, what does that mean, 27 miles a second? You see, and, and, and um, everything is in motion. And they say it's impossible to stop anything. You know, like absolute zero is when a, is when a molecule or a everything in the molecule stops. So they've gotten down, I think it's 300, what was it? It's 457, I remember correct, 457 degrees minus, <coughs> minus 457 degrees, you know? But, and I think they've gotten to one billionth of that temperature they can't get to that absolute zero means everything stops they can't get there you know it's like there's something built into this brio that forces it to move motion so you have those seven elements of the brio if you think about that that we really don't really really know well and understand and so on you see so <clears throat> this is the physical universe okay in terms of the spiritual universe, which he's going to mention, we have no idea what their fundamental constructs are. We have no idea. What makes up the spiritual universe? We don't know, you see. But in any case, the Ramchal says that there are two basic places. One is called the physical universe, and the other is called the spiritual universe. The spiritual universe, is there time? Yeah, there's time, yeah. It's certainly... If they interact with us, there's certainly time. It would seem so, yes. They're all waiting for the Guru Lord. Yeah, they, 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 obviously there has to be a future, yeah, future. which means there, there, there is time. It would seem so, certainly. Um, uh, so the Amchal, what he wants yeah. to do is define... What is the way I think about life on other planets that maybe begins Life on other planets. Yeah, looking for that perfect planet. I think in a certain sense, I don't believe there is life on other planets. That's my personal belief, you know. Uh, however, even if they found something on another planet that would not contradict Judaism, why? Why wouldn't it contradict Judaism? Because the real question isn't so much, is there life on other planets? The real question is, what's their function? What's their purpose? Like, what, what are they supposed to do? You see? 
Uh, so it would just mean that like anything else. I mean, what's the purpose of an ant that's crawling in your living room? You know, what's the purpose of that, you know? And so on. So if there are beings from other planets, they do not have the purpose that the Torah gave. You see, the ones who have the real purpose of creation are the Jews because they have to rectify creation. Everything else basically has its purpose, which basically is an assist of the Jewish people. Now, how an ant can assist you is unknown, right? How any bug crawling in the forest can assist you is unknown. Yet every single thing that is, exists is created for that specific purpose to bring about the end of the Tikkunak uh, the general rectification of the creation. We have no idea why. And that's the Amuna, you see. Uh, that every... Intelligent life I, I, well, like I say, I, I personally don't believe there is, but even if they found it wouldn't contradict the Torah, the real question is like, what, what's their purpose? Yeah. You know, I mean, the Martian comes over to you and say hi, if the Martian's there, you know. And you look at the, and the guy and say, excuse me, you know, are you Jewish? Mm. <laughs> and, um, That's a bigger chiddush. That's that's a bigger uh, discovery. Is there intelligent life on Earth? That's that's the real discovery. I think they're still trying to search for it. But anyway, it's hard to believe that there is intelligent life on Earth. It really is, because people are so unintelligent. It's beyond belief. But um, but it wouldn't be a contradiction to Torah. The real question is like, what's their point? What's the whole point of that? You know. Uh, but I don't think so. E look, uh, the, although now they've discovered that what's called exoplanets, thousands of planets, you know, but none of them seem to have the uh, fundamental elements that are required of life. Because life needs oxygen, it needs water, and needs a certain temperature. But it's only life as we know it. Yeah, that's also true, you know. Um, yeah. But you can find a planet with oxygen. What does it take for a planet to have oxygen? Yeah. <coughs> but uh, the planets that they've discovered so far, basically all of them are <coughs> inhospitable. They just, uh, you know, I mean, Venus is like 900 degrees uh, on the surface. It's like, you know, forget it. You can't live there. You know, 900 degrees and so on, you know. But um, <coughs> although they're desperately trying to find it, I think deep down, the reason why everybody's so much into the pursuit of life forms on another planet, because if they found that, then they could argue and say, you see, man is not unique. You see, and if man is not unique, right, then uh, you do whatever you want. Then forget about God, you know. Uh, that's why the church was so disturbed by Galileo's discovery, because uh, everybody thought in those days, the church especially, that everything revolves around the earth, because the earth is the center. Meanwhile, he found out that the moons of Jupiter revolve around Jupiter, not around the earth. How chutzpah. How dare they revolve around some other, which meant that man, this world, is not unique. It's like, it's like everything else in the, in the Bria, you know? It's Jupiter and there's us, you know? So let's get off our high, high horse, you know, that we're not so special. And if we're not so special then, so they chuck the whole religion. I think a lot of that, I think that deep down, that's the motive of why they're all desperate to find life on somewhere else. So like the Yam, the Yam HaGadol is the, the Mediterranean, even though it's not the biggest ocean, it's not even an ocean. So it's kind of like that, it's only Yam HaGadol because it's next to Eretz Yisrael. Yeah. I think, I think, I think it's what Chazal said, it's the Yam HaGadol Eretz Yisrael. So where are you going? So, so yeah. the point is that if only only with Ruchnius is something considered significant. But if you look at the, the Gashmius aspect, then there's nothing special about it. So the same thing with the planet Earth. Yeah, okay. okay. It's, only, it's only special because it has Earth itself. Yeah, okay. That's, that's what we believe in. But I'm just saying, I think that's why everybody's trying to pursue life. Because they really want to de-emphasize the greatness of man. That man is not special, and, and evolution is then evolution is possible. You know, our our grandfathers were really monkeys. Yeah. This kind of stuff, you know. Although, with some people, you'd like to believe somebody. 
the grandfather's taka were monkeys. But anyway, they're certainly acting like monkeys. But um, and I think that's the underlying reason. It's the same reason why everybody loves Darwin. Because if man evolved, they forget about it. They just, they, took, they just took God out of the equation. So what's the big deal? Look, in the end, everybody's looking for a heta. Let's face it. Nobody wants a boss. And everybody is looking for a way that they can chuck God and his whole system. They're all deep down looking, because that's the ultimate conflict of man. How do I get rid of God? You see, because everybody wants to get rid of God. You see, from Odd Mauritian and down. The question is, what are they prepared to do to get rid of God? Well, scientists, what are they prepared to do is find some <coughs> type of a car, a human, or some type of life form, which will obviously, according to them, prove that man isn't special, and therefore man evolved based on what Darwin says, and the universe has an origin which is physical. It has nothing to do with spirituality. I believe that's really behind all of this, is to get rid of God and to get rid of his, um, his uh, empire, so to speak. That's why he has to send the Sandy to remind them? That's a what? That's why he sends them a hurricane Sandy to remind them. Yeah, well, no, well they, they just say yeah. it's the weather. It's Mother Nature. Yeah. Mother Nature. Where does Mother Nature hang out? I'd love to know that. You know, I love the way you say it's Mother Nature. Mother Nature? Yeah. But anyway, um, but anyway, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't in any way have any contradiction. I don't believe, you know. But besides, I don't believe they'll ever find it, you know. Because what they fail to understand is this. Here's the mistake they all make. Even if you found a planet that has the right conditions for life, Correct? the right conditions, right? Which means the temperature is like our temperature, you know, it gets 80, 90 degrees Fahrenheit and that's it, right? And it's got oxygen and it's got, uh, what do you call it, uh, water, it's got all the fundamental uh, necessities of life, right? So what? How does life begin? Nobody knows. The odds of having a living thing form from any proper environment is beyond calculations. Whatever happened to that? You see, just because you provided the proper environment, whatever happened to the probability that life should form from any of this? I once told you that the, they calculated the, the probability of a human being forming with thousands and thousands of enzymes and hormones and organs and cells, it's beyond belief, right? Is a one followed by one and one half million zeros. What kind of a number is that? That's not even a number. Zero. What? It's a big zero. No, no, that, that's not a probability. That, that, that's not conceivable at all, you know? And that's only a human. What about all the life? There are 7,000 species of ants. Each one's different, you know? So that, this, the, see, there are two problems in Darwin. One, how did life form? One. And the second thing is, how does the variations of life form? I mean, even if it started from one cell, assuming so, right? How do you go from one cell, right, to 10 to 100 million different species? And it's not enough. Mutations are not an answer. You know, whatever. It, 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 I don't get into the whole thing, but there is no answer. Nobody knows. So even if they found, this is the mistake they all make. Even if they found, you know, the right conditions, so what? You're still left with the fact, they can't even answer on Earth how it began, right? And Earth has the proper conditions eventually, right? So then how did it happen? So then why should it happen in another place? That's what they haven't grabbed their heads around, you see? That's why the nonsense of all this. You see, because the problem is much more than just the environment. The problem is the probabilities uh, of life forming. You see, I mean, uh, you think about a DNA, the, 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 you know, the uh, DNA of a cell, you know, it's four billion lungs or two and a half billion lungs or whatever it is, you know, uh, and there are only four chemicals and they form the rungs on that twisted ladder, because that's really what it is, is what is, I think, with two billion or two and a half billion, whatever it is, 
how in the world did the first DNA molecule ever come into existence? And it should form the ability to make all the ingredients to make life. And then who assembles life? I mean, if you think about it, you know, I, I always look at the, you know, the two greatest nisim of I've ever seen. How does one cell from a, a man and a woman, one cell, go from that in nine months to a fully formed embryo? How? I mean, how does a cell know what to do, where to go, and how to stop? How does one leg know where to stop and the other leg knows where to stop at the same time? I mean, it, it's beyond belief, you see. And the second incredible miracle, which you can't and never get over, right, is how in the world does a two-year-old kid know how to speak English? How? This kid didn't go to school. It's not a language school. You know, yet the kid, after two years old, what's two years old, you know? If I want to learn French, it'd take me a century to learn French. You know what I'm saying? And I'm a lot smarter than a two-year-old kid. Maybe not. Who knows? You see, so how does a two-year-old kid speak a full language which is grammatically correct, you know? And it has the, okay, but it has vocabulary, it has the proper grammar, it has the sequence of the grammar, which is syntax. How does it do it? What do you mean it imitates that? I want to tell you something. If I put you in China, yes, and you heard those Chinese speak, after two years, you still wouldn't know what in the world they're talking about. Because you have no reference, really. Because language is not just nouns, you know, I am, and you, no, no, no. There's verbs, there's prepositions, there's adjectives. How do you put it all together? It's astounding. Yet the Roshim obviously did it because how else is, how is anybody going to learn language? You know what I'm saying? How are you going to learn language? You're not going to go to school. And the Roshim needs everybody to communicate. It, it, it's a miracle beyond comprehension how the human brain of a two-year-old kid can learn to pick up a sophisticated language like English or Chinese or Arabic. These are very sophisticated languages, you see. It's astounding. So those two miracles are always beyond belief, you know. So that's the mistake that they all make. They think they're going to find the right conditions. Voila, as they say. Right yeah, yeah, thing, yeah. Well, it just means a new vacation home. <laughs> you rent out condos. That's basically what it means, you know. That's absurd. What? Why don't these guys just grow up and admit that there is no way that this universe or world could have come without a God? And that's the end of the mindset, you know. Why don't you just give up and stop the nonsense and grow up, you know. But anyway, yeah. Who was going to say something? Yeah. In uh, Darwin's notebook, he, he said there's one problem that used to keep him up at night. All these different species evolved differently. He couldn't explain how the basic parts of an eye yeah. were all the same across all the species. What, I don't know, iris, retina, whatever. No, the reason why he couldn't explain. So all the, I mean, he, he just... After a while, just discounted. Yeah, well, you know what? You're the problem. This this well, you know why it disproves it? Because according to him, a species will, uh, what do you call it, they will uh, gain a certain advantage, as they call it, right? And that advantage, it's a, and th that will allow them to adapt better and they will survive. The problem is that there are many organs in the body that half an organ doesn't work. So then why would they continue having that organ? You see, you know, if you have a, an eye that uh, has a, a, a round ball but doesn't have a retina, like, why would you keep the eye? Well, you can't do anything with it, you know? Because the eye is a very complex organ. It's got a whole, it's got a hundred million cones. I mean, it's like ridiculous. Or what is it, a million cones, whatever it is, you know? There's 120 million cones, whatever. Like, why would it even keep it? There's no advantage, it would take, millions of years for the eye to develop so why would the body even keep that and how would that species that had these parts why are they more advantageous than anything else i mean he realized that most organs are complex they're not just one thing you know but anyway you know you know the, really the, i mean darwin is rahmanus what can you say you know because he realized he just denied what they failed to realize 
it's not the design of the organ it's the complexity of the organ you cannot have how in the world does the human brain evolve the human brain is the most highly complex thing in the uni- in the known universe how in the world did that thing come into being I, I don't care if you give hundreds of trillions of years you know I mean it's like Fred Hoyle once said famous cosmologist Fred Hoyle said you know he said the the, the, the probability that you know this world evolved is the same probability you know if you had a hurricane that went through a junkyard and all of a sudden when the hurricane left after like four minutes right there was a there was a Boeing 747 sitting on the, the junkyard that's <laughs> for he was right the same probability would anybody believe the hurricane go through a junkyard even if you had all the components in the junkyard I mean, it's a different story, right? But let's assume you had all the components, right? The computer, the, the cabin, I mean, it's the whole, you know, the hurricane went through it, and there it was, it's 747 sitting on the, on the, on the <laughs> what? You know, that, that, and, that, and this is Fred Hoyle, a famous uh, cosmologist and so on, you know? Of course, it's impossible, you know? But like I say, you know, these guys, you know, they'll never give up, because there's an eternal war between man and God. It, re- it resembles, just to get a little politically correct here, or incorrect, you know, it's the same eternal war against the Democrats and Trump. <laughs> They'll never give up. You know, they just never give up. It's the same. Uh, uh, anyway, any, any questions? Okay. So we're now into the components, but it's very interesting area. What was that? We now have two. Perik Hay. Yeah, we're going to talk about just di- different things in this Bria. You said before about the, um, about the, the, the end of Perik Dalit. Um, you said about um, that it somehow would relate to the Korban. In terms of letting in the Satan. Yeah. So yeah, which I'm talking about because there, <clears throat> there are two tragedies which people do not realize, you know. <coughs> the tragedy of Tishabov is not just the removal, so to speak, of God, but it's introduction of a, of a satanic ele- element that destroys and also uh, gives other entities the ability to destroy. Which I will I'll talk about. I'll give a shit Tishabov shit, you know, because I'll be here for Tishabov, uh, you know, and so on. But uh, there's two things: the Khurban of the bias of the sec- of the Beis involves two fundamental areas, you know, and we'll talk about that, uh, you know, when we, before Tishbub, which was in two weeks, something like that. Actually, it's on Tuesday. So, uh, yeah, two weeks, two weeks from this Tuesday, yeah. So that uh, Saturday night, I'll talk about Tishbub, you know. When the temple existed, could an ordinary Jew, when they, you know, on the holidays, when they went to the temple, could they feel God's presence? Yes, definitely. An ordinary Jew. Uh, any or, uh, first of all, there's no thing as an ordinary Jew. <laughs> Forget about that. Jews are not ordinary, you know. Uh, but uh, but the, but the, anybody who approached the temple area could feel the presence of God. That's how powerful it was. What? We lost that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, we still have it. No, we still have it. A uh, uh, a um, what's called a smattering of that presence is still there by the castle, by the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. Yeah, that's what you feel when you go to the castle, uh, Maravi, the Western Wall. Right, you can feel the presence. Th- th- many people feel the presence. They More feel the there's something there. What was that? More than a show. More than yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. They feel. They are going that go there and they feel it. <coughs> I remember I once spoke to a guy. Jump around and shout, holy rollers. What do they feel? Hey, you know. Well, they're feeling good about there? themselves. You have to be a two. You can't just go and show up. Well, nobody knows who, but there are people that are feel, they feel a presence. Yeah. I mean, that, that for example, the first time I went, just like right after I got off the, the day after I got off the plane. Yeah. I didn't feel anything because I just got off the plane. 
and only after, and only the next time I came after being there to son yeshiva, and thinking so, about it and coming more prepared. So maybe you had to shine up your vessel. You had to create a vessel to the recipient. You once put it to me this way, and it's very powerful. The was built. Yeah. There was no blockage in a person's heart that was able to shine up. Yeah. Yes. Now with the crystal, the sweep on it, sometimes feel you, sometimes not. It doesn't. It doesn't force its way into you. But by the base of it was. It was. It was. Oh yeah. Impossible to go not, there and, and not feel. feel it. it was impossible. Yeah. Every Jew who went there felt. Besides, there were ten miracles that were ongoing. Yeah. We just watched them, and you couldn't believe what you're seeing. You know, uh, and you know, there was no, imagine the, the base of Migdash, I mean, there's a whole bunch of them, but the base of Migdash was basically a butcher shop. Think about that. That's basically what they did. There were mi oh, thousands and thousands of animals being slaughtered and then being cut up with their organs and burnt and so on, yet there wasn't one fly in the entire place. Did you ever see anything like that? No flies? They're all in South Jersey, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but there wasn't no flies. The smoke never st always went up in a straight column. No matter how the wind was, it, the smoke never moved. It always went up. A hurricane go through that. The smoke just kept going straight. There were many miracles that took place in the Bay, ten of them, um, that took place in the base of Mikdash, you know. So you could be a Maimon just by walking to the base of Mikdash. That obviously this is an incredibly spiritual place, you know. You know. Okay.